Hello everyone, the Atomic Hobo is back. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll see that I promised you this week a podcast about my wedding location. But don't worry, there'll be nothing silly and soppy and sentimental here. I'm keeping everything nuclear, even though I'm now a sensible married woman. But no, my wedding had a slight nuclear link because the ceremony took place in Blackpool's Imperial Hotel. And once we'd booked it there, we found, by sheer coincidence, that the hotel played a small part in Britain's Cold War history. So let's go to Blackpool and find out why. Now, if you're not familiar with the geography of the country, and I know that some of my listeners are from outside Britain, um, I know that because I sat in the Imperial writing postcards for some of them. Um, That's a reward for those who donate money to the podcast through Patreon. Um, Take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo if you're interested in getting some of those nuclear rewards. So let me just describe for those people where Blackpool is, because its location is relevant to being selected for Cold War duty. Um, Blackpool is in the northwest of England and it is of course on the coast. It's probably Britain's most famous seaside resort. Uh, I don't want to hear from any people from Brighton or Bournemouth or Scarborough. Let's not get into seaside wars. Blackpool is the best. Although I would say that because I'm from Glasgow and there's a tradition of uh, Glaswegians taking their holidays in Blackpool. So Blackpool is uh, on the coast in the northwest of England, its nearest big cities and therefore its nearest big targets in a nuclear war would have been Liverpool and Manchester. Uh, the smaller cities of Preston and Lancaster are also near and Blackpool also has a an airport, admittedly a small airport. That airport and the town itself played a hugely important role in the Second World War. So Blackpool isn't, in terms of war planning. It's not irrelevant. Uh, It's not out in the middle of nowhere. It's not in the wilderness. But nonetheless, it was considered, at least in the 1960s, which is the period we're talking about here, to be in a relatively safe location. Um, Safe, at least in terms of avoiding nuclear attack. So that's why the town and specifically its huge old Victorian hotel, the Imperial, made an appearance in Cold War planning. The old hotel, um, which has hosted famous names like uh, the Queen Mother, uh, Charles Dickens, Churchill and almost every British Prime Minister, was listed as a support site for regional government after a nuclear war. So, in short, that means that When the central government in London fled the city in advance of nuclear attack to disperse itself in small groups around the country, some of those civil servants, uh, planners and advisors, would have been dispatched to the northwest to look after that region and they would have stayed at the Imperial Hotel. It was probably chosen because it's big enough to hold them all. It is quite a huge hotel. It's of solid, sturdy Victorian construction and of course, the town itself, as we said, being in the northwest and being on the coast, was probably considered safe. Now, of course, when we say safe in this podcast, we mean it with big, heavy, inverted commas around it. Nothing is ever safe in a nuclear war. 
Because as we know, if the blast doesn't get you, the fallout could. You're never safe from fallout. It goes wherever the wind takes it. But they had to choose a location for these sites, so they chose the Imperial in Blackpool. Uh, let me tell you, it's a very eerie feeling to see the name of your hotel pop up in these old um, notes which were planning for the end of the world. Um, I was in the Imperial last week, um, sitting in the lovely old foyer, discussing fizzy wine and raspberry cheesecake with the wedding planner. And had things gone differently back in the 60s, politicians would have been in that very spot, in those same leather armchairs, discussing not fizzy wine, but uh, firing squads, radiation sickness and disposal of the dead. So that's our brief intro on why we're talking about Blackpool and the Imperial. But let's start at the beginning and find out where this idea of regional government after a nuclear war came from. Now, the idea of regional government um, isn't unique to the Cold War, of course. Um, It was perfected during the Second World War. There was an idea, a plan called the Black Move, which, uh, if Britain had been invaded by the Nazis... Churchill and his cabinet would have, if forced to of course, Churchill was very keen that he didn't want to leave London, but if they were forced to, the black move would have been instigated and Churchill and the cabinet would have departed London for a manor house in the West Country called Spetchley and the king would have been similarly dispatched to a gorgeous old building uh, in the Malvern Hills called Madrasfield Court I think I'm pronouncing that properly. Uh, do give that a Google because the architecture is, is astonishing. So World War II already had this sorted out. If the enemy comes, we, the government, will remove themselves to a safe place in the hope that they can continue governing. The Cold War took that all a step further. The government, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, uh, particularly, what was it called? The school trip to hell, if you want to look back at that one. Central government in, in the... Cold War era, if a nuclear attack had been deemed imminent, and if it wasn't a boat from the blue, if they had enough time to plan this, they would similarly have departed London to go to their huge bunker in Burlington. That was the code name for it. That was one of the code names for it. There were many others. Chanticleer, Eyeglass, Turnstile. Most usually it's known as Burlington. They would have fled to this massive bunker in the West Country. But of course... It would only have been central government who would have worked from Burlington. The rest of the country would have been divided up into regions and each of those regions would have had their own government. So they would have taken over from central government and until central government got back on its feet, until Britain was somehow patched back together after the nuclear attack, it would be governed at the regional level. So every region in England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland would have had their own regional government, their own little kernel of Whitehall, if you like. A government in microcosm is how I've heard it described. And there would be one man, and it probably would have been a man, this is the 60s we're talking about. One man would have been in charge of that region called the Regional Commissioner. And he basically would have been able to do whatever he liked. There would be no instruction coming from Whitehall. 
That's the whole idea of dispersed government. You can't expect instructions to come from on high. You have to manage things at the local level. So the regional commissioner would have been at a bunker known as a regional seat of government, or RSG. And he would have had, of course, a collection of people around him, politicians, civil servants, people from industry, people from fire, police, ambulance, etc. And hopefully they would have been able to govern their region get things back on their feet until central government could again take over. That might not ever have happened, but that was the plan. Keep things ticking over until the big boys in London can once again start ruling the country. So your regional commissioner is um, tucked away in each area in his RSG, his regional seat of government. These were mostly... (laughs) We like to think that they were all bunkers. Some weren't. Some were simply old army barracks or old government offices which had been deemed sufficient because they were perhaps out of the way of um, big targets or they could have some sandbags thrown at them and that would have made them a bit safer. But don't imagine that each region had this great high-tech bunker tucked safely underground. That wasn't the way at all. And let me list some of these uh, regional seats of government for you to give you an idea of how um, haphazard they all were. They weren't all bunkers. The northern region, for example, that would have been ruled from Catterick uh, military barracks. The northeast region, their RSG was the keep at York Castle. Similarly, the southeast region had Dover Castle. Um, Scotland, um, their central control was in Edinburgh the outskirts of Edinburgh, in a bunker called Barnton Quarry. So they did have a big whopping huge bunker. And indeed, I visited that bunker and I've done a podcast on that. You can find that if you scroll back through the archives. It's called Inside the Bunker, Barnton Quarry. Uh, And the northwest of England, which we're looking at in this podcast, their RSG was Fullwood Barracks at Preston. So from that little collection there, you've got military barracks, you've got castles, and you've got proper purpose-built bunkers. So a huge mixture there. And the regional commissioner and his staff, if time permitted, if there was more than just the infamous four-minute warning, they would have been dispatched to these bunkers or these sites, these RSGs. They would have had dormitories, so they could have, because they would have been expected to live there for at least 30 days. Because, of course, you can't emerge, wherever you are, whether it's a bunker or under your kitchen table, you can't emerge after a nuclear attack until the fallout has diminished. So they would have had to have stayed there for at least 30 days. So the bunkers, the RSGs, had to be equipped with uh, sleeping areas, canteens, generators, of course, to keep the thing uh, powered, to keep the air filter working. And, of course, you needed lots of office space. The RSGs also tended to include, or would have included, a BBC studio, because one of the roles of the RSGs was to communicate with the shattered population so there would have been a BBC studio in each of these bunkers indeed I've seen the one at Barnton Quarry and from that BBC studio instructions would have been issued uh, fallout warnings etc would have been issued and when things progressed and when the authorities thought about law and order and clearing the streets and feeding the population there would have been advice and instructions issued such as come to this place to be fed these are the the jobs which need to be done 
because of course your little kernel of civil servants in these RSGs, they would have had to clean the streets of both rubble and bodies, as we discussed in a previous podcast, Disposal of the Dead. Nothing can happen unless until the streets have been cleared. You can't get food and supplies through. So you'd have to clear the streets of all the debris and also clear the streets of the thousands and thousands of corpses. So the Regional Commission has to organise the most basic things like that. They would also be in charge of organising food supplies, of course, trying to get the local economy back into some kind of working condition, keeping the population um, informed as to what's happening, and further down the line, if it's possible, getting people to do some kind of organised labour and maybe even looking at, in time, starting up education again. And yet none of these things can happen, not any of them, unless there is law and order. That was one of the things the RSGs were obsessed with. You have to maintain law and order because all this talk of clearing the streets, organising labour gangs, getting food supplies through, none of this is going to work if there's anarchy and chaos. So you must maintain law and order. And that's one of the sinister elements of the RSG, the regional commissioner in charge. Basically, he would have had the power to organise courts. If you've been um, suspected of some crime, then you're going to have to be going to go before a court. Where is the court? There is no court. There are no judges. There are no lawyers. So he would be in charge of throwing together some kind of makeshift trial. And of course, if you were found guilty, there's no point punishing you. What kind of punishment is a jail sentence? What kind of punishment is a fine? These things have ceased to have any meaning. And so he would have had the power of life and death. And that awful topic is discussed in the Panorama episode, If the Bomb Drops, which is available on YouTube. Jeremy Paxman sits down with one of the men who would have been a regional commissioner and he confronts him with that. Would you be able to have people killed? And the guy is sitting there in his suit and he's very cold and very calm and he just says, yes. That's what would have happened. I recommend that documentary. It's on YouTube. So that's what was going on at your RSG. Or that's what would have been going on. (laughs) I always talk about this as if it happened. That's what would have happened at your RSG. So the North West region, their RSG was... And this all changed, let me just add, this changed a lot during the Cold War. Even the term RSGs eventually disappeared. So the whole system was constantly changing. But in the 60s... When the Imperial gets a mention, which is what we're talking about here, RSG for the North West was a Fullwood Barrett Preston, but the Imperial Hotel was listed as its support site. So what is a support site? Well, basically, you can't cram everyone into the RSG. They were designed to hold usually about 300 to 400 people. That's the figure that usually pops up. But you probably need more than that to administer a region as big as the Northwest. The area will need more than 300 men in suits to get it back on its feet. And so we had what was called a support site. Now, I had never even heard of support sites until I saw the Imperial listed in these notes. So when there's something I don't know about or don't understand in nuclear planning, specifically how the government would have planned to keep itself administering the country there is one person i always turn to and that's mike kenner mike is on twitter his twitter name is at wellbright i would recommend you follow mike he's an expert on these things so i emailed mike and just asked him you know what on earth i'd never heard this term before a support site 
And Mike said that the regional commissioner, commissioner may not even have been present at the RSG when the bomb dropped. And that's because his role, it wasn't concerned with the attack phase. And then after that, we have the survival phase. But the regional commissioner, his role went far beyond that. He was more concerned with rebuilding the region. So his role went beyond um, the first few hours of a nuclear war. His role was quite vast, ruling a large region during the long and painful recovery phase. And so his survival was seen as vital for the region. So by all means, pack the RSG full of nameless civil servants, but your regional commissioner, it might make more sense to have him in a safe area. And again, we say safe with inverted commas around it. So your regional commissioner might well have been packed off to these safe areas, in this case, a seaside hotel, and all his helpers and minions and civil servants, they'll be busy in the RSG. And then after the attack, they can all accrete. They always use the word accrete. So after a nuclear war, when things were safe, when movement was possible, everyone would gather at the designated RSG, in this case the barracks in Preston, and then the regional commission would roll up his sleeves and get to work. Of course, by having a support site, you've also got more space. You can pack in more staff, more resources. It means everything isn't concentrated in one place. So even if the RSG took a direct hit or was completely obliterated, you've still got staff in your support site. And of course, it works vice versa. If the Imperial was taken out by a stray bomb, Hopefully you've still got your RSG intact over in Preston. So in the case of the North West, regional government in the 60s would have been from the barracks in Preston and the support site was the lovely old Imperial Hotel in Blackpool. Now, as we said at the beginning, these RSGs weren't all state-of-the-art bunkers. In fact, many of them were just plain unsuitable um, again, Mike made this point when we were having a chat about this, that um, CND or anti-nuclear activists might have given the impression that, oh, the government looks after itself, the government will be perfectly safe in these um, secure, protected, hardened bunkers while the rest of us die. But that's not necessarily the case. Uh, these RSGs, some of them were just plain unsuitable. The RSGs, lots of them were just absolutely unsuitable and were chosen probably in desperation or because there was nothing else ready in time. So Mike sent me some documents where the Home Office drop a list of all their RSGs, this is in the early 60s, and they basically have a list of pros and cons and what do these buildings need done to them to make them um, secure. So let me read you a few extracts from that and you will see just how unsuitable a lot of these RSGs were. And it'll give you an insight into what Cold War planning was like because the plans on paper might have worked but then the reality keeps rubbing up against it and keeps wearing holes in it. And of course Britain at this point simply didn't have the riches anymore to throw billions at building bunkers all over the place. So they had to make do, as Britain was famous for during the Second World War, make do and mend. You have to get by with what you have. So let's look at the pros and cons of a lot of these RSGs. Let's take a look at what they said about the northwest region, the one we're concerned with. Firstly, they noted its deficiencies, which was <laughs> quite a whopping deficiency. It says here, two buildings have been earmarked for use and some work has been done on them. 
They cannot, however, be protected against fallout in peacetime without interfering with the peacetime use of the premises by the army. So they're saying there that um, it can, we can't protect the building against fallout unless we begin a massive uh, programme of works to fortify it. But of course, that would interfere with the peacetime use of the premises. Not only that, but it would probably, if the media or the public realise what was happening, it could cause panic. It could even, as we all know, antagonise the enemy. If the Soviets uh, learned that Britain was fortifying its um, army barracks with sandbags and with um, fallout protection, then of course... The idea is they would think, okay, are they planning something? And then you're maybe tipping the world closer to war. So basically, the RSG in Preston couldn't be protected against fallout without interfering with the peacetime use of the barracks. So how would you get this building to readiness? How would you prepare it? How would you fortify it against fallout? Could it be done in seven days? Again, that's the timescale the government always very generously gives itself in these plans. Uh, We'd have a seven-day, what they call, precautionary period in which we could get all these things done. So what would we need to do in seven days to bring the Preston barracks up to scratch? Well, firstly, a second generator and additional storage space would be required. And the work needed to protect it against fallout, this is the quote, would involve about 35,000 man-hours. It is doubtful whether the protective work could be done in seven days. It certainly could not be done in less. So even though they're saying the building doesn't have enough space for a start, needs a second generator and needs 35,000 man-hours worth of work to protect it against fallout, they've still listed that as the site for their RSG. Even though it has all those glaring deficiencies, they've still said, yep, put that down on the list. We can shove the RSG for the Northwest in there. I think that hints at how bare their options were. The same goes for the northern region at the Catterick camp. Quote, No further work can be done in peacetime without interfering with the peacetime use of the building. It is doubtful whether this work could be completed in seven days. So it's the same as the Preston situation. This building is not ready. We can't get it ready in peacetime without creating a stir. And it's doubtful that we can even get it done in the seven days, the generous allocation of seven days. So what work would have been required for the Catholic camp in those seven days? Firstly, block up windows and doors and sandbag first floor and exterior walls to first floor height, 17 feet. That will take about 30,000 man-hours or 15,000 man-hours plus extensive use of plant. So a massive, massive task. So we like to think that the government had all these sites ready, they were all bunkers tucked safely underground. No, in these two cases, at least, they were ordinary army camps above ground, no protection against fallout, each requiring about 30,000 man-hours to get them ready. So I think that shows how desperate things might have been. And now let's look at the um, deficiencies of Warren Row RSG. That's quite um, an infamous RSG, as we'll find out uh, later in the podcast. The notes here say, quote, The Warren Row accommodation is primitive, unhealthy, and in parts, unsafe. The generating plant is of doubtful efficiency and too small in capacity. The ventilation system is old and internal temperatures cannot be controlled. Communication links to the communications unit at Reading are by overhead line and are vulnerable. 
The fire service have said that these premises are a fire hazard. Despite all of that, Warren Rowe was listed as an RSG for the southern region. The document uh, concludes with saying, To adapt Warren Rowe and bring it into a usable condition would be expensive and the headquarters would still not be large enough without further expenditure. The RSG, which is responsible for part of the London area, cannot be regarded as viable, particularly with regard to its very vulnerable communications. So hugely vulnerable and, as we've seen here, hugely dangerous. Now, before we go on to talk about why Warren Row was so um, notorious, and it's not just because it was a, a death trap, let me say thank you to the patrons who donate money each month to keep this podcast going. And some of those patrons will have received postcards from the very hotel we're discussing here, the Imperial Hotel. I know Blackpool isn't a, a particularly famous nuclear location, but at least being a seaside resort, there were plenty of postcard stalls on the prom. There are some nuclear sites I've visited, I don't know, Chernobyl, or obscure little bunkers tucked away in the middle of nowhere. I don't think it would have been easy to find a postcard in any of those locations, so at least Blackpool was brimming with them. So my thanks go out to Ben Capper, Claire Brennan, Gordy McNair, Kieran Taylor, Mary Freer, Paul Jonathan Viner, Paul Maxwell Walters, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Wynne Grant... Brian Outlaw, Colin McGee, Damian Ryan, Douglas Greenshields, Peter Lee, Richard Grundy, Sean Milson, Peter Mars, Sarah Williams, Jonathan Abelins, Sean Judge, and our newest patron, Lainey Peterson. Thank you, every single one of you. Now let's get back to Warren Rowe, the RSG for the South region, and we'll find out why that's got such a controversial history. Now the RSGs were, of course, top secret. You don't give away your location to the enemy. And neither do you want the general public or the local newspaper poking around. So the locations of all the RSGs, and of course their very purpose, were kept top secret. And I suppose that was an accidental advantage of using buildings which already existed. If you weren't building super modern high-tech bunkers, then there's no building work going on to provoke curiosity. Nothing to attract the attention of nosy nuclear geeks like us. So no one outside the the need-to-know circle knew what these RSGs were for or where they were. No one knew that there even was such a thing as an RSG. It was all totally top secret. That is, until the Spies for Peace broke the story. Actually, I've just typed... Warren Row into Google Maps and it seems it's beside an area called Crazy's Hill appropriate perhaps just as it's appropriate that the journey to the central government bunker at Burlington involved a checkpoint stop at Wargrave but back to the Spies for Peace they were an anonymous group of anti-nuclear activists and they found out about the RSG at Warren Row and they found out what its secret role would be in a nuclear war. And they broke in. Now, we've talked about how these RSGs are really not fit for purpose. Some had no adequate protection against fallout, etc. So this just reinforces that idea. Because, you know, a bunch of activists could easily break into the building. Now, they broke in in 1963, and they had the place to themselves. It wasn't staffed at the time, of course. So Warren Row was lying empty, Spice of Peace broke in, and with their cameras they took pictures of everything, including, most damning of all, 
lots of documents which foolishly had been left lying around and these documents very handily illustrated exactly what this building was for and what the plans would be after the nuclear war. And of course the very essence of the RSG is we'll protect the elites, the civil servants, the politicians who've been specially chosen. Everyone else can fend for themselves. Now, of course, they're not exactly being protected in a brilliant, wonderful, imperishable bunker. But nonetheless, it is some kind of shelter for government when the public had no such shelter. So the spies for peace thought, people need to know about this. People need to know plans are being made to protect certain people, but not the general public. So they broke in and they photographed everything they possibly could. And then, of course, they sent it all to the newspapers and to certain interested parties, people in positions of influence in public life, etc. They put all their damning information into a pamphlet and they called it Danger, Official Secrets, RSG6 and they sent 4,000 copies out. Of course, C&D were very happy with this and they gave out copies on one of their famous marches to Aldermaston. Let me read you a small extract from their document, Danger, Official Secret. You can find the full text in plenty of sites online if you want to read it all. I'll read you a quote here. It says, A small group of people have accepted thermonuclear war as a probability and are consciously and carefully planning for it. They are quietly waiting for the day the bomb drops, for that will be the day they take over. It goes on to ask, what is the function of RSG6, Warren Rowe? Quote, RSG6 is not a centre for civil defence. It is a centre for military government. It is the headquarters of the regional commissioner who will have supreme power over the three million bodies in his region. And it says, The smokescreen around these places is meant to blind citizens of this country, not enemies abroad. You are not thought fit to judge what your rulers do. But now you know, now you can judge, now you can act. And of course, it provoked huge protests outside Warren Row. Masses and masses of people gathered there. And the secret, of course, was out. The document didn't just focus on Warren Row. It also gave the addresses and phone numbers, very helpfully, of all the other RSGs. So, of course, once the secret was out, the RSGs became useless because you can assume that the Russians or the Soviets now know about it. And so all these addresses are going to be added to perhaps target lists so the era of the RSGs quite quickly came to a close. Spice for Peace blew it apart with their work, with their activism, and so the system had to again be rejigged. And let's look at how the Spice for Peace were received by the press. Let's look at the Times, April the 13th, 1963. Of course, we can't expect the Times to be sympathetic to them. No doubt if we looked at more left-wing papers, they might take a different view, but I'm looking here at an archive of the Times, and they said, the authorities are perturbed about the motives of what they regard as a serious and irresponsible breach of the Official Secrets Act, that the government have made arrangements to continue governing the country in the event of nuclear attack will presumably come as a surprise to no one. What is new is the detail of the alleged location of the emergency centres of government, and of their organisation and communication system. Defence and security officials admit that some of this information may already have been in the files of foreign intelligence services, and that in that case, its publication 
would probably have no more effect than other unilateralist propaganda. It is pointed out that if any of the information reaches the intelligence services of a potential enemy for the first time by means of this pamphlet, and if it is accurate, the spies for peace will have the satisfaction of knowing that at least one of the regional seats of government will be placed forthwith high on the target priorities of any country that might want to paralyse Britain with a nuclear strike. So the paper not very sympathetic to the spies for peace, but we wouldn't expect the Times to be sympathetic to that cause. So it puts blame on them, but at the same time it tries to puncture their balloons, saying, well, the information was probably out there anyway, so nuts to you, spies for peace. (laughs) Although the newspaper later reports that um, the spies for peace were given a bit of a telling off by a Labour MP also. Mr Patrick Gordon Walker, who was the Labour Party's chief spokesman in foreign affairs in 1963, said, quote, I unreservedly condemn the so-called spies for peace. They seem to be an utterly irresponsible and mischievous fragment of the divided unilateral nuclear disarmament movement. But they are spies and must be treated as such. But this does not absolve the government from full blame for their lamentable and repeated failures to guard national secrets. So the Times had to go at the spies for spilling secrets, but at the same time mocked them for saying the secrets probably weren't secret anyway. And then Labour had to go at them, but at the same time turned it into an attack on the government. So a bit of a mess all round. The only concrete thing which came from it was the location of the RSG number six was blown and addresses and phone numbers were given out for the rest. And so a new system of government for post-nuclear Britain had to be devised. And we'll look at that in another podcast. So that's us finished for this week on Blackpool and Spies for Peace and regional government after a nuclear war. Um, As ever, you can contact me on Twitter if you want to ask any questions. Uh, my Twitter is at Julie A. McDowell, or you can get me on Facebook. My nuclear page is called Nuclear Britain. And my website, which you can email me through, is juliemcdowell.com. Um, if you're following me on social media, you'll know that I've got another nuclear film night planned. What we normally do, if you're new to this, is um, we will set a time and we'll nominate a film, a nuclear film, of course. And we all watch it, we all press play on our DVD at the same time. We all watch it together and we'll share our thoughts on Twitter or Facebook. And what will happen then is on the following Sunday I will do a podcast about the film. And of course we'll discuss um, any thoughts that were raised on social media about it. So we've covered, we've done threads so far, uh, When the Wind Blows and The War Game. Those are, in my opinion, the three best ones. We're now going to move on to our first American one, uh, The Day After. It's freely available, of course, to buy. It's also available on YouTube, so I hope you can all join me with uh, watching that. The date and time are Tuesday, the 28th of August, 8pm. Of course, that's 8pm GMT, British time. I know that doesn't suit everyone. Um, I know we've got listeners in America and Australia, but I need to just go with where the majority are based, so that's going to have to be British time. But of course, we'll use the hashtag the day after, and I'll open up a thread on my Facebook page for discussion of the film. So if anyone is tuning in later, they can obviously 
still catch up with what we were all discussing by following that hashtag or following the Facebook thread. And what I'm also going to do in order to involve more of you in this, um, assuming you all want to be involved, is I will read out on the podcast, on the day after podcast, um, the best tweets or the best Facebook comments about the film. Because I think we've got quite a good uh, community of nuclear geeks or just people who are interested in this. And um, this would be a good way of, of uniting us and getting a discussion going. So by all means, use the hashtag the day after or join the Facebook thread that I'll start and I'll read out uh, any comments. The reason I began doing this was because I wanted to watch threads because I was writing an article about it for the TLS, the, the Times Literary Supplement. And I was, of course, frightened to watch it. It's horrific. And my hus- my husband, David, who I-, I married last week, and I keep forgetting, he's now my husband, he was in hospital. And so I was alone at home, just me and the dog. And I was frightened. I'm not embarrassed to say that. I was frightened of watching it on my own. And someone on Twitter, again, useful insights from people on Twitter, someone said, well, why don't you watch it with the rest of us? We can all watch it together. What a great idea. So we did that, and everyone tuned in at the same time, everyone chipped in their thoughts, we got some discussions going and I didn't feel lonely or isolated or frightened anymore because we were all watching it together. And so we've continued that idea. So here we are now with another mass viewing of the day after on Tuesday the 28th. So I hope you can join in and we'll follow up, as I said, on the following Sunday with a big juicy podcast about the film. So that's us for this week. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you to all my patrons who support the podcast and keep it going. And we'll meet again next week. Bye for now. (laughs) 